they gather up for kids crew. I'm thankful for all of our leaders who are making an investment in the lives of our, our children. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, we're really excited about just the future of ministry here at our church and, and all that is represented by, by these kids. Excited for that. Daniel chapter 4 is going to be where we jump into the text this morning. Daniel chapter 4. This summer, there's been a, uh, a really popular TV show that has uh, caught a lot of attention and created quite a bit of buzz called Stranger Things that was on uh, Netflix. It was released on Netflix. And, uh, you know, thinking about this this week, I was thinking about TV shows. And, and the reason why is because one thing that one thing that you see happen oftentimes in TV shows is sort of a... Um, a device, almost a storytelling device, if you will, that they will use is there will be some kind of an opening scene where something, something crazy has happened, right? Some kind of really dramatic, really big, intense opening scene that's designed to get your attention and, and, and pull you in completely into the story. And then there's a break. There's a moment, right? And, and normally they'll, they'll cut to the credits or something, you know, the opening credits or the title sequence or something like that. And in that moment where the, where the break happens, then they, they come back and they begin to tell the story of events that led up to the moment that you saw in the opening sequence, right? So it's like, it's like they, they use that as an attention grabber. They use that to pull you in completely. And now you've got to watch the show to see how did this mess happen or, or what, you know, how did, how did these events come into being? And, and the rest of the show really is just telling the story leading up to that point. And essentially, something very much like that is what we have in the text this morning in Daniel chapter 4. Because here we find the words of the king, Nebuchadnezzar, words that he himself is relating, and that Daniel has recorded these words as some form of, uh, it appears, some form of official uh, palace record of sorts. And Nebuchadnezzar begins by giving praise to God. He begins at the end, so to speak, because what we find in the beginning is that he is giving praise to God, and he's, he's opening by sharing his thanks for all that God has done. But then he relates the story of how he arrived at the place in his life where, where he was willing to give praise to God, how he came to be humbled so that he would give praise to God rather than praise and adulation to himself as the king over the Babylonian Empire. So it's essentially a, a very similar storytelling device almost that we find uh, oftentimes in, in, in TV shows or uh, in, even in books and, and other uh, forms of entertainment. And so as we jump into the text this morning, understand this. The first three verses of Daniel chapter 4 will give us a picture of where we will end at the end of Daniel chapter 4, and then the story that is related of the, the in-between, if you will, the, the events that led to that point, is really something that, uh, that is, uh, is the, it, I, I don't know another way to say it than you couldn't make this stuff up, right? I mean, it's, it's amazing the events that transpired in the life of Nebuchadnezzar that led to this point. Let's read this together this morning and, and kind of unfold this together as we study Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. 
So Nebuchadnezzar is, is relating these words, these, these things. He, the, the opening here of this chapter tells us that this is an address. This is an, a formal and official address from Nebuchadnezzar to the peoples of the, the world, essentially. Peace be multiplied to you, he says. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, for Nebuchadnezzar to be declaring this is an altogether an amazing turn of events. If you have been following the story of Daniel as we have been studying through this, then you know, you're well aware by now that this was not, this, this, this king was not a man who was, uh, who was a worshiper of, of God. In fact, he worshipped, Nebuchadnezzar worshipped the, the, the Chaldean or the Babylonian god Marduk. And, and so uh, Bel Marduk, in, in fact, he even named his son after that god. And the names that he gave to Daniel and his friends, Belteshazzar, Hananiah, uh, Daniel became Belteshazzar, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah became Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even those names have to do with the worship of the god Marduk. And so Nebuchadnezzar is, is in every way we would consider him to be a pagan and even a wicked man. In fact, uh, history tells us that not only was Nebuchadnezzar a powerful man, but that he was, in many ways, he was a violent and, and a ruthless ruler. Even in the Bible, just looking at the biblical account of, of events that are told of this king, Nebuchadnezzar, in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah talks about the, the, the violent rule of this king. In 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25, we find the, the historical record of, of how Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah. And, and in 605, when Nebuchadnezzar conquers Judah, what we find is that initially Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah when Jehoiakim came to the throne, came to power in Judah at the age of 18. So at the age of 18, Jehoiakim becomes the successor to the king Jehoiakim. This is in 2 Kings chapter 24 that we find this. And, and essentially, Nebuchadnezzar swoops in. He finds this to be an opportune moment. You've got an 18-year-old new king sitting on the throne in Judah. And so he, he conquers the Judeans. He comes in and conquers the Judeans and carries Jehoiakim off in captivity. And he finishes out the rest of his life, at least the rest that we, are, that we know of him, in captivity in the city of Babylon. But not only that, Nebuchadnezzar takes Jehoiakim's uncle, and he installs him as the king over Judah now. And he changes his name to Hezekiah. Uh, and, and so, uh, and, and excuse me, not to uh, Hezekiah, but to Zedekiah. Zedekiah. And Zedekiah, this king, tries to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And so what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He chases him down. He captures him in the plain in the area surrounding the city of uh, Jericho, he, he brings Zedekiah's sons before him and torturously slaughters Zedekiah's sons and then gouges out Zedekiah's eyes, 2 Kings chapter 25, so that the last memory he would have would be of seeing his sons slaughtered and killed before him. This is the kind of ruler that Nebuchadnezzar was, a, a ruthless, a, a, a vicious, a violent king. 
And yet, here we find in these opening verses of Daniel chapter 4 that he's offering praises to God. The same king who heated the furnace seven times hotter than it, than it would normally be heated and tossed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in. The same king that was going to have all of his, all of his scholars, all of his magistrates, all of his officials killed because they could not give him a dream that he had dreamed and then interpret it for him in Daniel chapter 2, right? This same king now appears to be worshiping, offering his worship to the Most High God. And the rest of Daniel 4 tells the story of how these events transpired in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. So in verse 4, we pick up, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. And as I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. And at last, Daniel came in before me, he whose name was Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretations. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. And the tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to the heaven. It was visible to the ends of the whole earth. And its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and its food for all. And the beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all its flesh, all flesh was fed from it. And I saw the vision of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. And he proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruits, lest the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven. We know now that this tree is, is a man, right? Because not only does this holy one in the vision say to chop down the tree but leave the stump, but now it says, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Clues here that this is talking about more than just a tree. It's referring to Nebuchadnezzar. And so, let's, let's keep going. We, we read uh, what happens. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. In other words, seven years passed for all of this. Verse 17 says, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end of the living, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Nebuchadnezzar knows that there is something different about Daniel. He recognizes that Daniel has a wisdom and an authority that others don't have. Scholars believe that, biblical scholars and, and, and people who study all of these events believe that these, these events are happening 
some, some roughly 35 years or so into the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. So in other words, Daniel, if he was a young teenager at the time that he was carried off into captivity, captivity, and if this is now nearing the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, then Daniel would be a man somewhere in his, let's say, around the age of 50, somewhere around maybe 50, late 40s, 50 years old or so, at the time that these events are taking place. So many years have passed since the events of Daniel chapter 1. Many years have passed since the other dream that Daniel was able to relate to the king. Many years have passed since these other things have happened in the book of Daniel. And yet, Here we find that in all of these things, Nebuchadnezzar knows that Daniel is still one who is unlike any other man in his kingdom. Daniel has a wisdom and an authority even rests on him that even Nebuchadnezzar himself recognizes is authority that comes from God. The the ability, the the anointing is maybe a word that we would use that Daniel had here. And and so essentially he says to, to Daniel, Tell me the meaning of this dream. None of the other wise men, none of the other men who considered themselves to be wise and learned could, could understand or tell the meaning of this dream. And yet, Daniel, I know that you can because the Spirit of God is on you. The Spirit of God rests on you. In verse 19, Daniel tells the interpretation of this dream. We read that Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar said, my Lord, may the dream be for your enemies who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Daniel was troubled by the meaning of this dream because he knows that what he's about to speak, if he's going to be honest and share with Nebuchadnezzar the meaning of this dream, he knows that this is, this is not a, a, a nice or a pleasant thing for the king to hear. That essentially, as we, as we get into the meaning of the dream and what, what all of this means, Daniel recognizes up front. In fact, at first, he doesn't even want to say until the king prods him to, to speak up. Tell me. It doesn't matter. Don't be afraid of the meaning of the dream, even if it's not a good one. Tell me the meaning of, of, of the dream, essentially. And so verse 20, he says, The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to the heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which was the food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens live. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, it is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the feast, the beast excuse me, of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven." And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that, the hev- that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps 
be a lengthening of your prosperity. So Daniel tells the king the meaning of the dream. He gives him the, the understanding of what this dream means. Essentially, Nebuchadnezzar, you are this tree. You are the one that will be chopped down. Your kingdom will be preserved, but you will be driven out from among men. You will, you will be like a, an ox, in, in a wild beast in the field, it says, covered with the dew of the field. It's a sign that, that, that essentially you, you are, you're going to be removed from your power until you recognize that God is, is the one who appoints kings. God is the one who gives authority. God is the one who is sovereign over you until you humble yourself before God. And so Daniel encourages him, king, it's not too late. Don't, these things don't have to happen. This doesn't have to be the way it is. It's not too late for you to turn back. If you would do good, if you would practice righteousness, he says, and if you would, if you would uh, have mercy to the oppressed. But verse 28 tells us that all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, in other words, a, a year goes by. So for a year, the Lord has given him time to repent. For a year, the Lord has given him time to practice righteousness, to have mercy on the oppressed. But the heart of this prideful, wicked king has stubbornly refused. At the end of 12 months, verse 29 tells us, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? In other words, he's, he's expressing even to himself atop the roof of his palace how great he is that he's built, that he's done all of these things, that he's built this mighty city and this mighty kingdom of Babylon that, that was the most powerful kingdom the world had known. And in reveling in all of his glory, verse 31 tells us that while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew till his hair grew as long as an eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. And so what happens is that the very thing that the Lord had prophesied came true in Nebuchadnezzar's life. God gave Nebuchadnezzar the opportunity to repent, to, to live righteously, to turn from his wickedness and, and, his, and his arrogance and his pride, and yet stubbornly the king refused. A year passes, and as the king is declaring his greatness and his own glory of his kingdom that he has built, the very thing that Daniel prophesied through this dream and the vision that occurred to Nebuchadnezzar comes true. The kingdom is taken from him. And he's driven from among men is what it says. Now, a lot of scholars have, have, uh, have tried to determine and, 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 and you know, made, made attempts at understanding what does this mean that, the, that he was driven from among men. And today, it's largely understood that, that he, he lost his mind, that he went mad, right? That we would describe this today and, and with our modern understanding of medicine and science and those things, that... that uh, that he had some kind of, 
of a, uh, a, a break, right? a psychological break of sorts, uh, that, he, that he just went mad, that he lost his mind. And for a period of seven years, he lived as a wild beast. It's interesting over time the different interpretations or the different understandings that have been posed for what this means. Some biblical scholars at different points in, in history have argued that, that uh, this was lycanthropy. In other words, that he was like a werewolf, essentially, that, that he literally became like a, a werewolf, right? Others have argued that, that he was transformed into a, a beast of some sort as he was driven out from among men, half, half beast, half man. Uh, but the, the story does point us to the fact that, that he's driven from driven from his kingdom, driven away from, from people even, that he was living like a wild animal in, in the fields, like a, like a beast in the fields, and that during all of this, still, his kingdom was preserved. Well, that's an interesting fact, because for seven years, there was no ruler on the throne in Babylon, this great kingdom. Now, Oftentimes, if, if the king were gone for any length of, of time at all, then there would be some kind of a, a reaction against that, right? Someone would be vying for his throne. Someone would be, would be shooting to be the, the successor to the king. And yet, in all of this, the Lord preserved his throne. Perhaps, uh, some, some have, have written that perhaps God used Daniel to preserve the king's throne. Daniel was in the highest position of authority under the king in all of the kingdom. And so perhaps it was that God used Daniel to lead Babylon during this period of time and help preserve the throne. We, we don't have all of those events recorded for us, but what we do know is that for a period of seven years, Nebuchadnezzar went stark raving mad. I mean, the guy went nuts, right? To the point that it describes him here as his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. But that's not the end of the story, right? That's not the end of things. Verse 34, we read that at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heavens and amongst the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me. And I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I... Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So the moral of the story is this, essentially, Nebuchadnezzar says. As he tells all of these events, as he relates these events that happens, he, he comes to this final conclusion ultimately. God has authority and power over all things over even the greatest of kings and kingdoms, and that he has the power to humble those who are prideful and arrogant. And so the point of relating the story is that the king would have people know, Nebuchadnezzar would have people know, that we should humble ourselves, that we should 
honor God because He has the power to humble us if we won't humble ourselves before Him, right? Here was a king who had all the power and the authority and the sovereignty that any man in this world could want, and yet God took all of that from him, drove him mad to prove to him the power and the authority that the Lord had over him. So as we study this passage this morning, I want us to see five lessons that we learn in this from Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, this king here, is is our teacher now essentially in relating this story to us and telling of these events and telling of his own experiences in defying God and resisting God. And there are five great lessons I think that we can see that, that come from the example of Nebuchadnezzar's own pride and the way that he resists God in this story. And so in your sermon notes, there's a place you can follow along, and, and I want us to take note together of these, these five lessons about pride that we learn from Nebuchadnezzar. First of all, we see that pride promotes self-centeredness. Pride promotes self-centeredness. Nebuchadnezzar is completely focused on Nebuchadnezzar in this story, right? At, especially at the point at which he has these dreams, uh, this dream, these visions, He's completely focused on himself to the point that even when Daniel offers him the opportunity to humble himself and to repent, it's not too late, king. If you will, if you will practice righteousness, if you will have mercy on the oppressed, it's not too late. These things don't have to happen if you will humble yourself, Daniel tells him. And yet the king wouldn't do it because he was self-centered. No one can take my kingdom from me. No one has the power and the authority to take these things from me, Nebuchadnezzar thinks to himself. And so as he's standing on top of his palace, and he's, and he's wondering to himself, as he's basically uh, remarking to himself about his, his own greatness, drunk on his own power, right, that those very things are taken from him. You remember in Daniel chapter 2, the vision, the dream that Daniel related to the king, that there was this giant statue, and that this statue represented, represented Nebuchadnezzar, his kingdom, and that just as the statue crumbled and fell, that the kingdom would be taken from Nebuchadnezzar. He should have known these are not, these are not new ideas, these are not new events that are being presented to him, and yet, after a lifetime of rule and authority, he's come to believe that no one can match his power, no one can match his authority or his abilities as a king, as a sovereign ruler, and yet God uses these events to humble him. Pride promotes self-centeredness in our lives. It causes us to focus on what we want, what we desire, what we think is best, right? Every proud person is a person who, who is, is completely in, in love with themselves. We become self-centered in our pride and just as that led toward Nebuchadnezzar's fall in our lives as well, pride and self-centeredness lead toward a fall. Not only that, pride misplaces our worship. It misplaces our worship. And what I mean by that is we were made to worship. All of us were made to worship. We, we were designed, our very lives themselves, I believe, were designed so that we were made to give honor and praise and worship to things. But of course, we understand in the Scriptures that we were made to worship God, and yet in this story, Nebuchadnezzar worships himself. He recognizes that there is an authority that Daniel has that is unlike others. He recognizes that Daniel, Daniel's God has power and authority that, that Nebuchadnezzar does not have, that his God even 
does not have, and that the gods of all his other all his other magicians and his scholars, the Chaldeans and the astrologers, that they don't have this kind of power and authority that Daniel has because the Spirit of God is on Daniel. And yet, even still, Nebuchadnezzar worships himself. He worships Marduk as God. He, he's, he, he will not humble himself before the God, the Most High, the God of Daniel, and, and honor him at least not at the outset of this story. But what's interesting is by the end of the story, by all signs, by all, by all appearances, Nebuchadnezzar is a believer. Now, the question that many have asked over time is, do you think that Nebuchadnezzar converts? I mean, is this a story? Is this a sign of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion? And the answer is we don't truly know. We can't really answer that because we don't maybe have a full context. But I, I don't think it's a stretch based on what he is relating here and these words, that this praise that he has. I don't think it's any stretch for us to say that, at least by the appearances of the text, that Nebuchadnezzar converts here. By the end of this, he's a believer. He is a, he is a, a believer in God, a worshiper of the Most High God. Certainly, he's offering his praise. In the very least, we could say he's offering praise to God here in Daniel chapter 4. Pride causes us to misplace our worship because rather than worshiping God as we ought, pride causes us to worship ourselves, the object even of our pride, right? We, we worship the, the things of the, our possessions, the things that we take pride in, whether it be relationships or, or a job or money or our toys or whatever it is, right? We, in pride, we, we, we worship those things, and yet all of those things are inadequate. None of those things have the ability to satisfy, to, to, to give us what our hearts want. So pride misplaces that worship. It misdirects it, if you will, toward things that are, that are idols at best, that are inadequate, right? Third, we see this, that pride stands in the way of wisdom. It stands in the way of wisdom. Here, there is understanding that Nebuchadnezzar simply cannot have because his mind is is clouded by his own pride and his own arrogance. There's, there's the dream he, he sees, the vision he sees, but he can't determine its meaning because his mind is clouded by his own pride and his own arrogance. It takes one like Daniel who is humble, who is, who is in tune with reality, understands God's authority and, and God's, God's greatness, who can understand the wisdom here that escapes Nebuchadnezzar. Proverbs chapter 11 verse 2 says that when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. So the Proverbs tell us that, that wisdom comes with humility, and yet in the life of Nebuchadnezzar we see clearly there's no, there's no humility, and so there's no wisdom either. You and I, if we are to live our lives with wisdom, then we must humble ourselves because arrogance, pride, it stands in the way of the wisdom that, that God would, would reveal to us. Fourth, we see this, pride deserves God's discipline. Because of his pride, because of his arrogance, because of his selfishness, Nebuchadnezzar is deserving of God's discipline, and man, does he ever get it, right? That he's driven mad, he's driven from among men is the way that the text says. He, he loses his mind for a period of seven years, 
the powerful king who ate the choicest foods, who wore the choicest clothes, who lived in this, this opulent palace, is driven from all of that to live like a beast of the field, to wander about. Pride deserves God's discipline, and certainly Nebuchadnezzar receives that here in the way that God took everything from him. Why does pride deserve God's discipline? Because, again, pride would have us to focus on ourselves and what we deserve, and it would make us to be the, the king, us to be the, the God, us to be the one with a, any real power or authority. It, it, it completely blinds us to the truth. Proverbs 16, 18 tells us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And certainly that's the case in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He has a haughty spirit, and certainly there's a great fall that happens here with, with him as well. But then perhaps most importantly, we see this. Pride places us at odds with God. We know in James chapter 4, verse 6, that it tells us that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. Why does God oppose the proud? Because in their pride, the, the, the proud would make themselves to be God. They would, we, if we live with pride, we essentially, it's as if we're saying, God, I don't need you. I've got me. I've got all this, right? We make ourselves sovereign. We make ourselves the, the one deserving of, of, of whatever praise and worship and honor we would give. Pride promotes that self-centeredness. It misplaces worship, stands in the way of wisdom. It causes to be deserving of discipline in all of these things. It places us at odds with God. And yet, James chapter 4, verse 10 also tells us that if we would humble ourselves before the Lord, He will exalt us. That's the very same thing that we see in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. Finally, when Nebuchadnezzar looks to heaven, we see in verse 34, when he, when he looks to God, when he recognizes that where he is and what has happened, then his mind is returned to him. His reason returns to him. And he gives praise to God. He gives honor to God. His kingdom is restored. And, and even greater things than he had known before are given to him, it tells us here. And yet in all of these things, now we see he gives praise to God and he extols and honors the King of heaven and all of his works and all of his ways, right? And he says these words, the very last words of this chapter, the very last words that we have recorded for us from the mouth of King Nebuchadnezzar because in Daniel chapter 5, there's a new king. And so the last thing we hear from the mouth of King Nebuchadnezzar is this. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. God has power than those greater than the power of men, right? And he has the power, the ability to humble those who are too proud to humble themselves. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so the point in, in the text, the point in, in Nebuchadnezzar's own words that are related to us is, is clear. That we would humble ourselves if we would humble ourselves, then God will exalt us. He will lift us up. If we will humble ourselves, then we can walk in, in, in intimacy with God. Then we can share in that relationship and all of the things that God desires to give us. If we will direct our worship toward Him, 
instead of toward ourselves, if we will not be self-centered, but rather Christ-centered in the way that we live our lives. You know, at its its most basic level, our sin and our rebellion against God, all of the things that we do, all of the sin and the rebellion and the things that we've done against God, ultimately, at its very base level, is, is about pride. It's the pride that says, I will do things my way. I will be in charge of my life. I will choose how I live. I will do what I want to do, ultimately. That's what sin says. I will find whatever source of satisfaction. I will find whatever strength. I will find whatever, whatever I want in the things that I look at. Ultimately, pride is at the very heart, the very root of sin. And what, what does that mean? Well, I think it means this, is that for us, when we read this story, it's easy to think of this as happening in an ancient time with an ancient king in an ancient kingdom and just say, okay, yeah, so God humbled that proud king. And we think, I'm not like Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not, I don't have a vast kingdom and a great palace and all of these riches. And yet, really, when we really get to the heart of the matter, the same problem that plagued this proud king is the same problem that plagues our hearts as well because it's pride that would keep us from humbling ourselves before God. We understand just as God gave Nebuchadnezzar the opportunity to humble himself, God gives us the choice as well. If we would humble ourselves by turning from our sin, by repenting from our sin and turning toward God, if we would humble ourselves by recognizing our need for salvation that we cannot supply ourselves, if we would humble ourselves and recognize that on our own we will never be good enough to earn God's forgiveness, then we can receive the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness that God would would pour out on us. But like Nebuchadnezzar, if we resist in pride and in arrogance, if we would resist, then we too will experience the, the, uh, the discipline, the, the punishment for our sin that we deserve. Don't wait until it's too late to humble yourself before God. Don't wait until, until it's too late because there, there will be a moment when, when you and I when, when we live no longer, right? There will be a moment when we pass on from this life, and in that moment, it's too late. In that moment, it, it's too late for us to make the choice to humble ourselves before God. Just as we see that Nebuchadnezzar was given the opportunity, you and I have been afforded an opportunity that we would humble ourselves before God, that we would turn away from our sin and toward Him, that we would repent by receiving the free gift of God, which is salvation in Jesus Christ. Today, would you be willing to humble yourself before God? In a moment, we're going to have a time of response. And in this time of response, our altars will be open. Maybe today you recognize that there is some some area in your life where you're battling against pride. Now listen, I understand that when I say the altar is going to be open for you to come and pray, there's that voice inside of you that says, Oh, don't go forward, right? Everybody's going to know that you have a pride issue, right? But isn't that the very root of the problem to begin with, right? The very, the very idea itself is, would you be willing to humble yourself, to acknowledge that there, that there is an issue, that there is an issue of pride in your life that you need to be humbled of? 
Don't resist the voice of the Lord if he's speaking to you today and he's urging you to make that right, to get right by repenting, by turning away from those things that you, that you take pride in, those things that would keep you from living in the grace that God has for you. I, honestly, I, I, I think you shouldn't worry too much about what anybody else thinks about how prideful you may be because, I mean, honestly, if anybody else would stand in judgment, then doesn't that show that they too have an issue of pride in their life that they need to get right as well? Ultimately, we should be much more concerned with what does God think of where we are? And I also wonder today that for some who are here, maybe you're hearing this and, and what you need to be challenged with today is would you, would you be willing to humble yourself and receive the salvation that God has offered? Has there ever been that moment in your, in your life where you've humbled your heart before him where you, have, where you have truly repented of your sin and turned to Jesus for salvation, turning away from yourself, turning away from your own inability to save yourself and casting yourself on his mercy. If there's never been that moment, then I pray that during our invitation you would come, take myself, take Brad by the hand, and just say, today I'm ready to humble myself before God. Today I'm ready to be saved. And let us pray with you. Let us walk you through a prayer of faith where you can commit your life to him. If you are not willing to humble yourself, if you are not willing to bow your heart before him, you resist, then you will be deserving of God's discipline. You, will, you, you have set yourself up for a fall that is coming. But if we will humble ourselves, the Scripture teach us, then He will exalt us, which means that God will raise us up. He will do for us what we could never do for ourselves if we will turn to Him in faith. You bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning as we prepare for this time of response, I want to go before God now and, and I just want to pray this, this simple prayer. God, would you have your way in our hearts today? Reveal any pride, any ways that would keep us from humbling ourselves before you. Let's pray together. Lord God, I pray that you...